0: This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Rebecca Corbett, Japanese studies librarian at the University of Southern California Libraries. Dr. Corbett is the author of Cultivating Femininity, Women and Tea Culture in Edo and Meiji, Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2018. Dr. Corbett, thank you for talking with me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, before we get into talking specifically about the Meiji period and and how tea practice changes during the Meiji period, I was curious, really, what is it that attracted you to the topic, or what is it about tea that brought you into this project?
1: Sure. Uh, I've been studying tea for uh, a number of years now. I first started studying when I was a Rotary Exchange student living in Aomori Prefecture in Japan, and uh, so doing an extra year of high school there after I had finished high school in Australia. And um, just sort of randomly, um, my host family was at a Soto Zen temple. So my host dad was the head priest of the temple, and his older sister was a Urasenke tea teacher. And so one week early on when I was living there, they asked if I wanted to go to a tea class after school as kind of a, you know, just to see what it was about with my older uh, host sister. and. I really enjoyed it and kept studying for the rest of the year and then continued studying when I moved back to Australia, um, because fortunately that teacher was Urasenke and they're the largest school of tea, uh, both in Japan and internationally. So it was in Sydney, Australia, it was easy to find a teacher. Um, and I think initially what I liked was definitely eating the sweets and drinking tea, um. But also something about the practice really appealed to me and my tea friends, as I call them. We sometimes do joke that it's maybe like a chicken or the egg kind of thing because um, I think people who tend to do tea and really enjoy it probably have a little bit of an OCD personality. But maybe tea also brings that out. So it's like which comes first, because there is this real focus on the minute details and you know exact placement of objects and. Your teacher will maybe tell you, you know, that's like a millimetre or, you know, um, half a millimetre off, you know, move it slightly this way or that way. And you have to kind of, uh, to do tea intensively over a number of years, you have to really be able to buy into that. Um, so it probably, I think, suits certain people's personalities maybe more than other people's. Um, and I, the other thing that I really like is that it's a social activity, so it's an For me, it's an aesthetic practice, and I really enjoy that side of it, Um, thinking about utensils and uh, how to create a theme in a tea gathering with the arrangement of utensils, but it's also that social interaction. You don't do it on your own. You know, you're always making tea for other people uh, and having that interaction, and I really enjoy that side of it. Um, But my research on tea culture then all kind of came out of that early first year of practice in Japan and then afterward in Australia because as a university student I was then studying uh, mostly Japanese and Chinese history and I was always very interested in women's history and in feminist history. And I knew that in the tea world in Japan it's dominated by women. My teacher in Aomori was a woman. All of the other students in the class were women and they were mostly older women. Um, uh, and that was certainly like the image of tea that I had, that it's like this w- woman's activity and it's associated with femininity and with bridal training for young women and there's like a hobby for older women later in their lives. Uh, it was the same back in Australia. It was mostly women in the class, whether they were Japanese women or um, non-Japanese women. And the only men in the class who were in the minority Uh, you know, had come to it from different angles. If they were Japanese men, it was usually because they were a businessman from kind of an elite standing, uh, elite social background. And so I was really interested in that. And in reading histories of tea culture, they always said that women started studying tea in the Meiji period and that this dominance of women in terms of contemporary practice where like 90% of the population of tea practitioners in Japan are women, that this is a modern development and it only goes back to the Meiji period. So for me, wanting to pursue graduate studies, that seemed like a really interesting topic to pursue because it uh, connected my two interests in tea culture and in women's history.
0: And so then in doing your research, you talk about how, in fact, this idea of women starting to do tea practice in the Meiji period is actually not so accurate. So women are involved much earlier in tea practice. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So that's the interesting thing. Uh, so I thought initially going into the the research and choosing that as my topic for a PhD d- dissertation, I thought I was going to be writing a dissertation and hopefully one day a book on tea practice in the Meiji period or Meiji and Taisho. Uh, And in fact, my main advisor um, is a a historian of that period. And it was just in doing the kind of background research because I felt I needed to say, well, you know, this is what happened in the Meiji period. I needed a little bit of background research. I was really surprised to start finding a lot of evidence that women were doing tea in the Edo period. Uh, so then the story really started to change and I remember sort of having to like go back to my advisor from time to time and it's like oh I think there's gonna be like a whole chapter on the Edo period now and then like well, I think there's gonna be a couple of chapters on the Edo period and then it got to the point where I was like I promise there'll be like at least one chapter on the Meiji period <laughs> so the, the research and the sources really led me in that other direction um, that was completely opposite than what I'd expected. So, you know, initially I knew from what I'd read that both in academic studies and also in the, the tea histories that the Urasenke School in particular publish themselves, both in Japanese and English, The there was two reasons really given for why women started studying tea in the Meiji period. The first was that the then head of the Urasenke School, Sai allowed women to study tea or opened up the doors of tea to women, some of the ways it's been put. And so that implies that they definitely weren't doing it or weren't allowed to do it before. And then they also say that uh, having tea added to the curriculum of girls' schools in the Meiji period was really instrumental. Uh, But it was only ever a couple of paragraphs at most in any of these histories that I was reading that really explored that. So I just wanted to explore the story more fully and look into those two reasons and see what else there was. But I was always expecting it to be a Meiji story. And then when I I started doing the research, as I said, and found all these sources, I found that, in fact, uh, you know, it really goes back at least 150 years prior to that these ideas about femininity and having women study tea for specific reasons associated with the cultivation of femininity and in fact then the Meiji part of the story becomes looking at continuities and changes in the Meiji period rather than the Meiji period being the start of the story.
0: often when we talk about women in the Meiji period, it's this idea of the sai Kembo, the good wife, wise mother, and this would be the the tie to femininity in the Meiji period. But So you're saying that this idea of cultivating femininity through the tea ceremony actually starts during the Edo period, and then it just kind of gets piggybacked by people in the Meiji period?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, so certainly the, the sources that I've looked at, there's a various reasons presented to women in the Edo period why they should study tea and one strand of it is that you should study commoner women, so women of lower social status should study tea as a way to learn femininity uh, or cultivate femininity and a particular type of femininity that's associated with women of elite status. So in the book I call it genteel femininity and that studying tea teaches you comportment and etiquette and manners and these sorts of things. So those are the ideas that are presented in the 20th century, even today, for why women should study tea. Um, so part of my point is just that that discourse does not begin in Meiji. It goes back to at least the mid-18th century. Uh, but there were also a, a lot of other reasons and ways in which women were encouraged to study tea in the Edo period. So I think really what happens in Meiji is that First, the number of men studying tea starts to decrease because even though I'm saying women studied tea in the Edo period, uh, still the majority of practitioners were men. And so the number of men studying tea starts to decrease in the Meiji period. And throughout the 20th century, the numbers of women start to increase. And, of course, with the development of the good wife, wise mother educational ideology, particularly for middle-class women uh, in the mid-Meiji period onward, the you know tea and these associations of it with genteel femininity really fit in nicely with that. So that's where you can see why the inclusion of tea in the curriculum of girls' schools made sense at the time. In some cases, it was used as an etiquette class, so the, the tea class was the etiquette class, at the school uh, in other cases it was there was a tea class in addition to a general sort of etiquette class um, but I, I think those reasons that some women had been some people had been promoting in the Edo period for why women should study tea particularly at this kind of level of popular discourse that was aimed at commoner women really fit in nicely with those Meiji ideals of good wife wise mother. And that's why you start to see that connection becoming stronger from then.
0: And, and, it, and it fits that popular idea of, of Meiji, certainly, as bringing the liberation of women. Right Now, be, because of the modern progressivism, women are now giving are being given opportunities and, yes. and rights that they never had before. And yes. certainly they didn't have during this dark valley period of the Tokugawa.
1: Yes, people have often asked that question, they're like, well, this research you're telling us, you know, it's really interesting. But so then like, why have people said that women weren't studying tea in the Edo period? If there's these sources that show that they were. And I think part of the answer to that is that because there is this, you know, not in academic circles, I don't think anymore, but there's certainly this popular understanding that the Edo period is the nadir for Japanese women. It's this dark period of you know, Confucian oppression, And so it's easy to believe this story that oh, suddenly in the Meiji period when everything's like enlightened and we're, uh, and starting to modernize that, that's when women are allowed to study tea, that it's opened up to them as this new area of, uh, a social or cultural practice. And so it's kind of an easy story for people to believe if they have that wider framework already.
0: And so what you're pointing out is there is these continuities over the early modern into the Meiji period. It's not such this sharp break period, perhaps. Is there anything going on in the Meiji period that does fundamentally change tea practice?
1: Yeah, I I think the Meiji period is really important for looking at the history of tea culture, because, of course, with these monumental political changes that are happening and then the, the social changes that flow on from that, uh, it does really alter the world of tea on the on the kind of large scale. So, if we think about just the Sen family schools, Urasenke, Omotesenke, koji Senke, uh, they w- all had uh, relationships with specific daimyo in the Edo period. So, the head of each of those three tea schools was employed as the tea master to a particular domain. With the abolition of the domains in early Meiji, they then lose those positions of the hereditary tea master being affiliated with a certain domain. And the kind of um, like out with the old, in with the new attitude of early Meiji really did cause something of a crisis in the world of tea because it's associated as this traditional art form of you know the old era that we're now in some senses really trying to do away with and move on from Uh, Fukuzawa Yukichi wrote some, you know, stuff about tea culture that's pretty scathing of it. Really, uh, he was not a fan of those kinds of practices, just as an example of a Meiji intellectual. Um, And so there was also in 1872, the head of the Urasenke school wrote a petition to the Kyoto government because he was unhappy with the designation of tea masters like himself as entertainers was the kind of category they were put in. And he was espousing, no, these are these Confucian virtues in tea culture and it's this long-held tradition and we shouldn't be seen as mere entertainers in um, the same way that, say, actors are. Uh, And so there was this kind of crisis point in terms of the interest that people in society had in something like tea culture, the income being generated now that you'd lost these hereditary positions and so the schools of the major schools of tea really had to try and transform themselves in the Meiji period and transform their image. Of course the mid-Meiji kind of return to traditional culture and uh, move away from that early Meiji um, infatuation with if you like with Western things also helped uh, the, the revival of the T-Schools. And I think strategically promoting the practice more to women and having it included in the curricula of girls' schools certainly helped with that. There were other things that the Urasenke School in particular did, and I think this is where we start to see the seeds of it becoming the most successful T-School and then for the largest T-School in the 20th century. Uh, so again in 1872, for an international expo in Kyoto, the head of the Urasenke school created a new tea making procedure or Temae that used tables and chairs. And so this was really innovative. You know, it's taking tea out of the sitting Cesar on Tatami and using Western style chairs and tables. And it was designed to both appeal to Westerners who were maybe in Japan attending that international exposition, uh, but also to appeal to Japanese, among whom those Western things were really in vogue. And, you know, to this day, a lot of people still do that style of uh, tea preparation, particularly for demonstrations at places where we maybe don't have a tatami mat room set up. Um, So I think that there was a recognition by the tea schools that they had to do something... um, Sort of innovative and radical to start changing and not become a kind of a dead art form. And I think from at least if you're thinking about the Urasenke School, uh, promoting themselves more to women was probably part of that. Uh, But I always want to emphasise this point that 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 was not new. And in fact, the ways in which they promoted tea practice to women were very similar to what we had found in the Edo period. Uh, A key difference, though, is that national identity starts coming into the equation. So you should study tea to become a proper Japanese woman rather than you should study tea to become a refined woman who comports herself in a similar manner to a woman of elite status, which is how it was framed in the Edo period. So that uh, national identity component of this is a specifically Japanese cultural practice And for women, this is a type of Japanese femininity that they can cultivate is new in the Meiji period.
0: point about the nationality. Uh, I want to come back to that. when talking about tea as a national symbol. Uh, but, but first, the promotion of tea, especially in the Meiji period, I wonder if, if, is there also an economic aspect to this? I mean, we're talking about the tea as a way that women uh, were cultivating femininity. Is there also women as cultivators of tea? I mean, you think about a lot of the tea farmers, in my understanding, were, were women in particular, right?
1: Yeah, that is, that's true. And I never really have fully explored that dimension, but I think it would be really interesting. And I think there's also the economic dimension in that if you're the head of a tea school and you're losing, uh, your practitioner base and losing that daimyo patronage and so on, and you need to, you know, you need to find new students, then it makes economic sense, for example, to have tea included in the curriculum of girls' schools. Even if only some of those students continue to study after they graduate from school, you've got yourself a whole bunch of new students there. Um, So I'm not sure that it was entirely all as calculated as that might sound, but I don't think we can discount the economic motivations for uh, tea masters uh, wanting to open up tea practice to women more than it maybe had been previously. The other side of it is that uh, in the Meiji period you start seeing writings encouraging women to start practicing tea because they can then become a tea teacher themselves and uh, in in my book um, I describe one text in some detail that really talks about the financial side of that. It's like if you study tea and you learn enough then you can set yourself up as a teacher and it will provide you this much income and so on, and if you teach at these kinds of schools or you teach private lessons in your home, this is the different amounts you can charge. And it's included in a book on women's occupations alongside being a post office clerk and being uh, a school teacher and so on. So it's it's presented to women as this is an occupation that you can aspire to, but you obviously have to learn enough to be then qualified uh, to teach.
0: It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, tea was certainly one of the biggest export products of Japan uh, throughout most of the, the 19th century, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but if we go back to that question about the national presentation and the kind of national imagery and the kind of embracing of tea and linking it to national identity. And, and certainly during the Meiji period, there's an attempt to present Japan To the west and it's like uh, all these travelers coming in there's photographs being sent back and and it's the time that this this image of japan really forms around the world and tea is always one of the central components of that and and whenever i ask my students you know what let's brainstorm what do we think of when we think of japan somebody inevitably will say tea Mm
1: -hmm. yes so if we think about i mentioned earlier the international exposition in kyoto but of course these weren't only being held in Japan. The late 19th century is this great period of world's fairs and international expos. So uh, if we think about North America, you've got the, uh, the the world's fair in Chicago, you have the exposition in St. Louis, for example, and at these, in ev- invariably, there was a Japanese tea pavilion or tea house with tea ceremony demonstrations being part of that and if you look at the comments by western audiences they this really appealed to them and there's even uh, i think it's some comments about the tea house going up i believe for the chicago world's fair so even as it's being built local newspapers are reporting on oh and you can see these you know the japanese craftsmen at work and they're building this amazing tea house and there's this excitement building up around it before it's even open um I know in the Australian context, you know, there was in that late, late 19th century period, there was uh, touring groups of different Japanese cultural uh, performers who went to different parts of Australia and, you know, a tea demonstration was often part of that. And so I think that also helped uh, reinvigorate the image of tea back in Japan. This recognition that Westerners are looking at this and seeing it as a distinctively Japanese practice and as an interesting practice that they admire, then that helps people in Japan also see it as something that is uniquely Japanese and to be treasured and something to continue practicing and to promote among uh, Japanese. And then, of course, if we're talking about Meiji period and the image of tea culture, especially internationally, then... Okakura Kakuzo's The Book of Tea, which is published in English in 1906, uh, is, you know, extremely influential in determining both how Western audiences understand tea, even to this day. And then, especially once it's translated into Japanese later, uh, to Japanese audiences as well as kind of a manual of like, this is how you can explain tea culture to a Western audience. Uh, That being said, I have a lot of problems with the Book of Tea and I don't think that reading it really helps you understand tea culture. I think it's better to read it in terms of understanding Okakura's specific brand of aesthetic nationalism, if you like, and uh, how he was using tea as an example or a metaphor to explain broader concepts that he had. Uh, But it's certainly very influential in terms of the the Meiji period, reshaping of tea culture and its image within Japan and internationally and as tea being set up as this quintessentially Japanese activity that is strongly associated with national identity.
0: I had no idea that he published it in English first. Yes. That's fascinating.
1: So he wrote it uh, largely for the, uh, the audience of the kind of Boston high society women who he was uh, involved with in Boston at that time, like uh, is- Isabel Gardner uh, and so on. And so it's, it's later. It's, I think, I think uh, it's 1929 that it gets translated into Japanese, so there's quite some gap. And then some later um, Japanese authors who also wrote in English on tea and some of them were translated into Japanese, they all, uh, this is like 1920s, 1930s, they all express their... Kind of debt to the book of tea. Um, but yeah, it's, it's first published in English and specifically for a Western audience, especially, and you know, when you read it, it's saying all these things like the, you know, the average Westerner in his sleek complacency will never be able to understand. The oddities of the East, and the practice of, of tea culture, you know. Yeah, it's it's very much for a Western audience.
0: Reminds me of Nitobe Inazo's Bushido or something like this. Yes,
1: yes, yes. And when I've taught uh, a class on traditional Japanese culture in the Meiji period, uh, I have students read things like Nitobe's uh, work on Bushido alongside the Book of Tea and, and think about how these uh, traditional practices, traditional philosophies are being set up um, as Japanese, you know, in relation to the West. And of course, this is something that could not have happened really uh, until the or before the Meiji period. That kind of international context was not important in the framing of tea practice until the Meiji period.
0: I don't want to ask you to make the casual offhand observation of or kind of repeat Okakura's uh, his thesis but is there something inherently japanese about tea ceremony or is this the, the too too you know immature of analysis here
1: yeah i'm always torn when i'm asked that question and i have a, a friend who gives a really good answer when she's asked that question so i wish she was here and i could just kind of channel her um and i think what's interesting is there. i think there really is a tension there because if the the retired head of the Urasenke school holandzai to who i mentioned before um he was very keen on promoting the universality of tea practice so the phrase that he used was uh peacefulness through a bowl of tea and he saw tea practice as a way to um yeah, spread peace around the world. You have to remember, you know, he starts becoming active in his role in the immediate post-war period, and so this fits into that whole post-World War II narrative of uh, Japan's image in the world and its place in the world. But um, the this idea that anyone can practice tea, and he was very instrumental in opening up the practice of tea to a non-Japanese audience, uh, so establishing branches uh, initially in places like Brazil and Hawaii, where there were already large Japanese migrant populations, but then all over North America, Europe, Australia, uh, later in uh, other areas of Asia and so on, and in welcoming foreigners to study tea, you know, at like Urasenke headquarters in Kyoto, for example, there's a, a year-long program for uh, foreign students to come and do intensive study and so forth. and. So he really espoused this message of like the universality of tea culture. But then there's a tension between that and these strong ties to Japanese national identity that are there as well. And uh, I don't know that in my mind it's fully resolved. And I think for many people, it's not fully resolved. I personally don't buy into the idea or the notion that tea is quintessentially Japanese. Of course, it developed historically in a very specific context and geographic location. And, uh, you know, when I'm teaching students about it, it's very clear that we can bring in a lot of associations between, say, Japanese Buddhism, if that's the class that they're taking, or uh, Japanese literary and aesthetic traditions, which was the class I was uh, talking with and doing T4 this morning, Uh, Japanese performative traditions. You know, there's a lot of connections Uh, with those fields and with tea culture, obviously. But I don't think that it's inherently Japanese in the sense that you have to be Japanese to study it or that if you're Japanese, you get something more out of it than if you're non-Japanese or that you intuitively understand it better or or that you will just naturally be better at it and pick it up faster than a non-Japanese person. Uh, I don't think any of that is the case at all, but there are people who do seem to to think that. Um, And I really think the best work here is, um, if I come back to Kristen Surak earlier, because she has uh, a really great study, uh, Making Tea, Making Japan, that's exploring these questions of national identity, making and uh, tea practice as an example of that. Um, But yeah, I think those are really interesting questions to ask and, to consider when we're looking at any kind of traditional Japanese practice, whether it be tea or shamisen or koto or something like that. I've seen many Japanese people who are beginners or novices at tea who don't know what they're doing and they don't intuitively have the manners and the uh, the etiquette and so on that's part of tea culture. And And so that's where I say, well, I don't see it as quintessentially Japanese or something that's really part of Japanese identity in that sense. And and I think it does get dangerous to start going down that path too far because then you get into Nihonjinron Jinron territory. Uh, but what we talk about in tea culture a lot is the idea of like having tea spirit or you have a tea heart and I think anyone can have that. And that's what I've seen in my years of practice. And I think most high level teachers uh, that I've ever uh, studied from would say the same thing, that it's about um, an attitude and a mental kind of approach to the practice. And that's something that anyone, regardless of nationality can have. And some people maybe have it more initially than others, just from the start, that kind of tea spirit or tea heart, but it's also something that you cultivate through your years of practice and study. Um, And so that's where I don't like the idea that um, we associate it too strongly with uh, national identity in that sense. But at the same time, you know, if we're thinking about uh, the development of tea historically and a lot of the, like, philosophy underpinning it, you know, it's very closely tied to Zen Buddhism and a Wabi aesthetic and um, the like Senno Ryukyu, you know, the most famous tea master who's credited with really um, creating Chanui tea culture. Um, Although I I like to say that I think of him more as the most articulate of his generation of tea masters, rather than seeing him as like a single individual genius who kind of created this practice. Um, But he supposedly said, when asked, like, what is tea? or what do I have to do to be uh, a good Chinese tea practitioner? And his response was supposedly uh, just boil water and make tea. That's all there <laughs> is to it, um, which is kind of funny if you've been to a tea gathering because you're like, oh, there's a lot more going on than just that. Like, um, but uh, I think that's where you can see the strong connection with Zen Buddhism because this idea of just do something, right? So just sit Zazen. Just make recitations. You know, it's the idea that's focusing on this singular act and this kind of really everyday activity that, say, making and drinking tea is, but having the intense concentration and focus on it or the intentionality behind your actions, that, and you're not doing anything else, that it's just that one thing, and then that is what can allow you to clear your mind and potentially you know get to a state of buddhist enlightenment um you know i think there's an argument you could say that perhaps that is a very japanese philosophy uh and of course people you know think that would say that the wabi aesthetic that underpins a lot of tea culture is also a particularly japanese aesthetic so i think we can kind of answer that question in lots of different ways and um, there's not really a simple answer, which I guess you can gather from my <laughs> what I've been saying, that I, I don't have a, a yes or no answer to that question.
0: <laughs> the Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Centre for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, at 150artsubcca
1: Thank you for listening.